Good morning. Today's reading is in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. Feel free to read along in a Bible you brought yourself or one in the pews or be blessed by listening. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do not answer. What is it that you What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? Father God, it's, it's, um, I, uh, I am, I am left speechless to, uh, when I try to comprehend the suffering that you went through on your way to the cross. And Lord, knowing that it was something that, you are completely in charge of that that it was your will to go there it was your will to have these things done with you as you said to Pilate, you could have had thousands of angels come down and rescue you but but uh, but you lay your life down only to take it up again and, and lord it's uh we so appreciate and and love you for that that you would give yourself up uh for us and and lord that, that the world described here is very similar to the world we have now where where there are there are false teachers there are there are people lying about you and and your nature and who you are but lord one day you will prevail and you as you said yourself here you'll come down you'll be at the right hand of the father and you'll you'll come down on clouds of glory and and we so we so appreciate you for that Lord, thank you for giving us this opportunity to worship you in music and the reading of your word and the preaching of the same. Um, thank you for giving us uh, 
Pastor Steve, who loves us, who loves you, and loves your word. Uh, help put in, his, put in his mind and in his heart what you'd have him teach us. And give us ears to hear so that we can listen and take to heart uh, what he is preaching. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all on this first Sunday of the month, this Lord's Day Communion Sunday and Palm Sunday as well. The, the music in general has been more somber, more sobering, and it, it should be. We are on this Palm Sunday, and Jeff's reading, of course. And I wanted to read something else. I just read this this morning, and, and uh, we come to church here, and it's, we're not playing a game, okay? You understand that. We are in spiritual warfare. We've got the struggle against sin, and there's a struggle against the devil. This is what I read. Celebrating evil. Satan Khan sells out with largest satanic gathering in U.S. Should we be surprised? As our society comes apart at the seams all around us, Satan and Satanism are becoming extremely popular. Videos featuring, featuring Satan are getting millions of views on TikTok and YouTube. Millions of Americans are watching shows that feature Satan as a main character on Netflix and other streaming services. And the Satanic Temple has become one of the fastest-growing religious organizations that the United States has ever seen. As you'll see below, traditional American values are declining at a very rapid pace. It was inevitable that something would fill that void. In fact, it turns out that Satanism values correspond almost perfectly with the values that much of the population has already embraced in this day and age. Once upon a time, most Americans were repulsed by anything that had to do with Satan. But now Satan is eagerly welcomed into homes and hearts all over the nations. Today, Satan has become one of the hottest spiritual figures in America, and that is unlikely to change anytime soon. The following comes from a Newsweek article entitled, Satan is Getting Hot as Hell in American Pop Culture. The devil is front and center, it says, in movies, TV shows, podcasts, and even children's books. There are Satan after school clubs while the proliferating Satanist groups have their own political divisions. On top of everything else, a major convention is coming up. It is being billed as the largest satanic gathering in history, and it's being held in Boston at the end of this month, and it's already sold out. So it's sobering, right? Sobering. We have our struggle against sin. We have our struggle against devil. But the good thing I want to say as we start here is this, is that we know that God, through Jesus Christ, has already defeated the devil. That's what took place on the cross. He defeated the sin and death and hell and defeated the devil as well. Important to know that. But I want you to know, realize that. I mean, we understand. I tell this to a lot of people. I said, hey, there's no doubt that God has given the devil a lot more free reign in our country the last few years. You see it. You can't miss it. What's going on to a large degree in this country is, of course, the sin of man, of people, but it's also the devil doing his work through people. That, that's that's what's, what's happening. Today, it's Palm Sunday. I want to talk about Jesus' suffering and glory. Jesus suffered a lot, as we know, during his ministry years, but he greatly suffered when he was on the cross. And Psalm 22, which was written a thousand years before Jesus suffered and died, describes what Jesus went through. And Psalm 22 is, is telling us, it's, it's really amazing, it's telling us, probably better than any other section of verses in the Bible, what Jesus was feeling, what he was going through. And some, there's some exact quotes that we find in the New Testament from this psalm. And so, it also though, and this is important, it's amazing, uh, uh, there's no other, I believe, chapter in the Bible that does this as well as it does. It talks about his suffering, and then it concludes with his glory, 
And it's amazing. There's nothing like it. So we're going to talk about suffering. Then we're going to finish up on glory as we go through this whole entire psalm. Psalm 22. Turn to Psalm 22. We're going to work our way slowly through this psalm this morning. I think I probably shared on this before, but I couldn't really remember. It says, hey, I'm going to do it again. It's definitely appropriate. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. First phrase here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is what Jesus actually said when he was on the cross. We know that from Matthew chapter 27, 46. And it's what he said to his father just not long before he died. You see, Jesus felt absolutely terrible when he was on the cross, worse than he had ever, ever felt before. And there's a number of reasons. i got four different reasons here. First, he was physically suffering. And sometimes we think, well, that's what it was all about. No, it was a lot more than that. Every inch of his body was hurting. He was in great pain. He was physically exhausted, physically worn out. He was emotionally hurting. He was all alone on the cross. He was continually being laughed at and mocked. And he, an innocent man, was being punished for our sins. Our sins were placed on him. And so I'm sure then he felt guilty. He wasn't, but... He was. It's hard to explain all that, but he was taking our sins. Third, Jesus was relationally separated from his father. Jesus and his father had this perfect relationship that went back into eternity past. And now his father has turned his back on him. His father has rejected him. And his father is not talking to him at all because of our sin. Jesus was spiritually separated from His father, Jesus, was perfect, and because he was perfect, then he could bear our sin. Then he could be punished for our sins. That's what was taking place. He was literally and literally experiencing and feeling the terrible and hellish wrath of God upon himself. That's what was happening. He he was being punished for what must have been billions and billions of sins. If you take account all the believers throughout all history who put their trust in him, billions of people, he did that. For all the sins of all the people then who would ever, ever believe in him. And so Jesus felt terrible in every way imaginable. He cries out to his father, like how the NIV says the same verse, Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the groaning of my words? And so Jesus' father is, is far from Jesus. He isn't talking to him. He's against him. He is punishing him. And on one hand, you have to say Jesus didn't deserve it. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us. That is, God shows his love towards us by having his son die for us. God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is, he took our sins upon himself. Verse 2, 22.2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. He kept praying. He kept crying out to his father, but to no avail. His father was completely silent. His father did not talk to him and could not talk to him because he was treating, the father was treating his son like he was a sinner. That's what was going on. And, and God couldn't have anything to do with sin but to punish him, which is exactly what he was doing. So Jesus was all alone. He's all alone, and he felt all alone. 22, 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, you, O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praise of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. Jesus 
knows that his father is perfectly holy, that he is perfectly righteous, and which is why he's being punished. And he knows also that his father is doing the right thing in punishing him. He understands that. He knows he should be punished because he's unholy, because he's guilty. But what happens here, and this is important, Jesus then thinks about the saints of old. He thinks about them, men of God, women of God who were trusting in the Father, trusting in him. He thinks about that. I think of Job. You know the verse, it's Job thirteen fifteen. It says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And, of course, I, I, I'm sure he knew all about Jeremiah and what he went through, the weeping prophet. And if you want to know what Jeremiah went through, really went through, you've got to read Lamentations. If you're going through something really difficult, Lamentations is the book for you, and particularly chapter 3. But chapters, verses, chapters 1 through 5 are just excellent. And so he knew these saints were being persecuted, and he knew that Jeremiah trusted God too. And so here is Jesus in extreme physical, emotional, spiritual anguish, and what is he doing? He is trusting God. Faith. That's, it. That's the, the first thing, well, key. There are some other keys here. We see what helped him to keep going. He trusted in his father. He trusted. They, he, he knew what was going to happen. They had talked about this before. Psalm 31, turn there, verses 14 to 18. Because I always wonder, did Jesus know the whole Old Testament? I have to think that he did. And so these verses I, I'm reading here just in a second, I believe, are very relevant because he knew what they said. 14, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servants. Save me in your loving kindness. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent and shield. Let the lying lips be mute which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. Just this morning, I was talking to my son briefly. He said, yeah, I was just reading in Psalm 31, and I said, I'm going to share out of that today. But the verse that he shared, and I didn't put it in, but I'm going to put it in now, is verse, verse 5. Into your, into your hand I commit my spirit. That's what he said in the cross. Again, words about Jesus, what he said. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth encouraging. The Lord is trusting in his Father. Back to 22, verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. A major, major theme of this chapter, of course, is that Jesus is being persecuted, is that people are hating him being laughed at, he's being mocked, he's being taunted, he's being insulted. It's like, it's like they were saying, hey, Jesus, you're so great. You're so great. You've healed all these people. You've done all these miracles. Why don't you save yourself? Or at least have your God save you. Turn to Matthew 27. See how it says it there. Matthew 27, 34 to 44. 34 says they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was un- unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. 
If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. He, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. But Jesus knew that he was doing the right thing. He knew that his father would come through for him. He knew he was dying for sinful people. He knew very clearly what he was doing, done. We talk about people dying for no reason. Jesus died for a lot of good reasons, the most important death in the whole history of the world by far. He had purpose. He had reason, everlasting purpose and reason. So he knew this. He knew that he was dying for sinful people, people who then would, would repent of their sins and put their trust in him and then be forgive them, forgiven. I was thinking of, I read, I read this Mark chapter 2, I like this verse about forgiveness. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So here's Jesus dying on the cross, and he has the authority, of course, with God the Father. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive people's sin. And you remember what Jesus said on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, and indeed, that's why he was dying, to forgive them and, of course, to forgive us as well. Back to Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Interesting verses. Again, this, this, this theme, this point here about Jesus having faith, that Jesus trusting God is, is made very clear here. And it's shown further in these verses. God himself is the one, of course, we know, that brought Jesus into the world. When, and, and, and God himself, through the work of the Holy Spirit, was making, was forming, was creating the body of Jesus while he was in there. Then, of course, God brought him forth. And what's so amazing, and this is true, is that here's this little Jesus inside his mother's womb. And then he's born as baby, and he's both God and man. I mean, I just, I just can't fathom that. But that's the truth. He was God and man. And so Jesus trusted in God when he was in Mary's womb. And when he was a little baby, you've all seen little babies. He's trusting in his father. When he's a little baby and when he's a toddler and, and a young boy and when he was uh, a youth and a teenager and a young man and during his ministry years and then, of course, when he's on the cross, his whole life, trusting his father, trusting his father. That's what was going on. And Jesus' faith in his father, his complete and total reliance on him was the key to his successful life, his successful ministry, and then being able to die on the cross for us. So he, he's on the cross. What was going on, what was going through his mind? He was trusting his father. That's, that's what was happening. He trusted his father for the grace and the peace and the strength that is needed. I think of those verses in, in 2 Corinthians. It says, when I am weak, then I am a strong. So here Jesus is talking about weak, talking about weak, but he was strong. Strong because of the grace of God. Psalm 22, verses 11 to 13. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened wide, they opened wide their mouth at me as a raven, ravening and roaring lion. He prays again. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And so the only way that Jesus could victoriously make it through these horrendous and hellish six hours by faith was by trusting in his Father. He was like saying, hey, Father, I got all this trouble. Man, these, these people around me, they, they, they're, they're strong, like animals, like ferocious. And he uses 
example there of lions and bulls. And so it's an interesting analogy, but he wants us to understand it was tough because of them. And, of course, God gave him all the strength that he needed. I thought of that verse in, in Psalm 18, verse 1. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I, I can't help but think he thought of that, too. He says, you're my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. We continue, verses 13 to 18. They open wide their mouths to me as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Your dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So he continues to pray to his father, even though his father does not respond. His father is completely silent here. And, but, but yet, Jesus knows what? Even though his father does not respond, he knows that his father hears him. He knows that. He knows that he will have the victory over sin and death. That's what he understands. And Jesus then, it's, it's interesting because this is the section more than any where we really see what he was going through physically. And I'm, not, I'm just going to make a few comments here, but he's telling, Jesus, telling his father about his physical condition. And first he says, all his bones, all his bones are out of joint. And I think all, you sure, all, all his bones. And, and of course, what's going on is the weight of his body pulling down, continually pulling down, got his bones pulled out of their sockets. I can't imagine what that would feel like. He says his heart is like wax. The physical stress that Jesus is going through is putting this incredible pressure, this unbelievable strain upon his heart. I have no idea what that means. feels like wax. But that's what he felt, okay? Physically going on, it felt like wax. Very little strength. He's physically exhausted and, of course, severely, severely dehydrated. And Jesus knows he's close to death. He knows that it won't be long before his body completely gives out and he physically dies. And so he feels then, and we, we read on here, it says he feels his extreme pain in his hands and feet. Hands and feet that have been pierced by these long nails, these huge spikes. And, and every time Jesus would push up from the cross, this screaming pain would be shooting through his extremities, his hands and feet, that is, because of that. So all these different things. He says he can con all his bones. Wherever his bones are at, which is most every part of his body, because of the extreme weight and pressure there was. And so, again, incredible, incredible pain. Then we read about these evildoers of like dogs surrounding him, like dogs going in for the kill. They stare at him. And, of course, these are not looks of love or kindness, but looks of hate and malice and, and anger. Not only that, but they're gambling away his clothes. Here's, here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the world, the one who made them, the one who is the savior of sinners. Here's the one who's going to be the king over the world, and they're gambling away his clothes. We continue, verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far, from, far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. So again, he prays to his father, and here he calls him Lord, his master. And of course, that just means he's the one in charge. He's praying to the one who is in charge of everything. That's what he was doing. And again, he asks for help. But what he's saying here is hasten, that is hurry up, bring this incredibly, unbelievably difficult ordeal to an end. That's what he's praying. 
His, he's praying for deliverance, for his life to be rescued from these enemies. We just talked about the animals before. They're referred to again here. And again, he uses these animals to illustrate the severe pain, that the severe peril that he was in. And, and there's, like lions, he said, like oxen, like wild dogs, all animals who would be extremely dangerous and deadly. Back then, they had packs of wild dogs. You know that. And so that's what was going on. I mean, you, can you just imagine this? All these people around him, all these enemies just screaming and, hell and he, screaming and yelling and spewing out hate. Psalm 22, verse 22 to 24. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the, in the, midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Um, yet you who, fear, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. For he has, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Most people, when they share in Psalm 22, don't go here. That's enough. Enough about Christ's suffering. But it's the whole psalm. Right away, right away here we see, and it's sort of a sudden shift. It's a sudden change, really dramatically so. It shifts to his glory. That's what's going on. Suffering and glory. That's, we understand that's, that's the way life is to be even for us. There's suffering and there's glory, and this helped Jesus. You see, Jesus was trusting his Father. He knew that his Father loved him, and the third thing he had was hope, right? We need faith, we need hope, we need love, and he had all three. And this then describes his hope. But verse 24, the, the verse I want to look at first, for he has not, not despised me. That is, that is, Jesus says God has not despised him, which means God has not ignored him. God has not looked down on him. God has not disregarded what Jesus is going through. He's not abhorred him. He's not loathed him. He's not detested him. That is, that is, and Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that his, his father greatly loved him, that his father deeply cared about him. He knew that that was important. He might have felt at times like he did, but he knew in his heart that he really, really did. He knew what he was going through and that he would answer his prayer. Turn to Psalm 16. Surely Jesus was thinking of these verses here. And these are the verses, you go to Acts chapter 2, when they talk about the resurrection of Christ, when Peter is preaching there to the people, the masses in Jerusalem. He uses this chapter here. He uses these verses to talk about the resurrection. Jesus knew them too. Verse 7 we read, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I've set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. To your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So all that, he knew it was going to be raised from the dead. And then come to the last verse there. He knew that he'd be in the presence of his father. He knew he'd be at his right hand where there would be pleasures forever. He could see this, visualize this because of this promise here that we have in his word. Back to Psalm 22. So we go to Psalm 20, verse 24, because that then is the basis for what's happening here. That final line there in verse 24, he has heard. He knew that the Father had heard him. He knew his prayers. He knew they'd be answered. He knew the word. He understand what was going to happen then. So we look at this, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. 
And so Jesus then is going to talk about this hope. That's what pretty much the rest of this chapter is about, this hope, this future glory that, that he knew was coming. Now, it's a little bit uncertain. And I, I thought about this a lot. I really said, what is, what, who's talking here? Is verse 22 when it says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Is that talking about David? Or is that talking about Jesus? You see, I think it could be both. But I really do believe it was Jesus. And the reason I say that is you go, you go to John 17. I think it's believe it was due. Says, says, glorify your son that I may glorify you. And so mutually they were wanting to glorify each other. They wanted to honor each other. That's what's going on. So I believe he did praise his father. You know what it says in, in Philippians 2? It says every knee will bow, every tongue will, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of the father, you see. So you think about Jesus in the future, up in heaven and things, and reigning over the world. It's not like he didn't talk about his father. I believe that he did. And so he says here, I will tell of your name. What's name? Name is the character of God. It's the purposes of God, the love of God, the holiness of God. When you talk the word name, it encompasses all who his father is. I will talk to people about your name, this great God. He is glorifying me, and I'm going to glorify him. That's what we see happening here. Then he says, I will tell of your name. Um, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. So, so then he's, he's giving honor and praise to God. That's what we see here. Honor and praise to God in the midst of all the believers. And this thought is repeated in verse 25, which we read, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. So he's praising the Lord. That's what I believe is, is happening here. And third, what it says in these verses, that in the future all believers will be standing before the Lord Worshiping him, standing in awe of him. That's, that's what's going to happen. We continue. Verses 26 to 31. I'm going to read these. I'm going to go through each one. 26 to 31. Um, afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all families of the nations will worship you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations, and all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. She's on the cross. He knows that his father loves him, and he loves his father he also has hope, as we're reading here. Again, understand, he was thinking about this. He was trusting his father. He knew the father's love, and he had this hope while he was on the cross. But here's a question. It's a good question. Is he talking here in these verses about the church age or the kingdom age to come? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's Matthew chapter 6. Or both. It's not clear. I will say this. I'll say a couple things. One is... All the prophecies in the Old Testament talk about the future. They talk about Christ's first coming, a lot of prophecies there, and about his second coming. There's nothing in the, in, the, in the Old Testament about the church age. Nothing. It's not there. So on one hand, you can say, well, it's all about the kingdom age. But I think at times God does share things that relates to our age too. So what we're going to see as we work through these verses just quickly here is that some refer to both, some refer to one, None refer just to the church age, okay? That's, that's how I take it. That's my understanding. I've been thinking about this a lot this, this, this last week. But back to verse 26. 
The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. The afflicted is a word you can think about it in a physical way, okay? But I believe he's talking about a spiritual way. It can also be translated as one who is humble. But it says they're ones who are seeking the Lord. The afflicted, the humble, the needy are seeking the Lord. And I believe they're the ones then who are saved. These are speaking of believers, okay? So you can say, well, this refers to the church age. That's true. It could. And, of course, I believe it refers to the kingdom age to come as well. And so these are believers, and they're praising the Lord. They're seeking the Lord. And it says they live forever. They have eternal life. 27, all the ends of the earth. And there's different thoughts here, different nuances. And all the one big theme here, these verses, I'm going to go separate them out. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. So everyone on the earth, all nations and all peoples, not just the Jews, but Gentiles. And I believe this includes unbelievers, okay? That's what I believe. And that's why I mentioned before the Philippians 2, 9, and 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And it talks about all these different regions of the universe. Everyone will bow before the Lord and give praise to God. Unbelievers, it'll be feigned worship. It won't be sincere, it won't be genuine by the unbelievers, but they will bow down. And I think that's an important point to understand. Right now we look at the world and, man, all these proud people out there, you know, doing their thing and they're sinners and just ignoring God. You understand? And what he's saying is everyone, everyone is going to bow down to the Lord. Everyone is going to worship the Lord. Psalm 67, 3 says, let all the peoples praise you. Now, that's not happening now. This isn't church age. No way, right? You know that. This is kingdom age. Every knee will bow. They'll have to. It's going to be interesting. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Next, verse 28 The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This is definitely kingdom age language. You can't get around it. It's not church age. Not at all. There will be a kingdom. This is Christ's kingdom. He will reign. He will rule. As I said before, he will rule with a rod of iron. I, I can't wait to see that. I mean, don't you get excited about him ruling and being in charge and all perfect justice and holiness and everything's taken care of? It'd be wonderful. Psalm 145, 13, many verses on the kingdom in the Bible, just this one I like. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. Then verse 29, we continue. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. So the, the first point out of this verse is those who are rich will fear the Lord will bow down to him and will worship him. And I don't think this is just talking about rich people that live during the kingdom age. I believe he's saying all rich people, those, and I think this is kingdom age language here, because again, as I said before, not everybody during this church age worships God. They don't. But during the kingdom age, everybody ought to bow down to the Lord. So I believe he's talking about rich people during the kingdom age, whether they're saved or not. That's what he's saying. We, we, we look at this world now, and we know this. And, and Jesus talked about this in the, in the Gospels. He says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is something about that where the rich and the prosperous and the elites and stuff, they're not saved. I'm not saying some aren't, but for the most part, they're not. And so he's saying, hey, in the future, every person's going to bow down. Even the rich people are going to bow down too. That's, that's what I believe he's saying. Then he says all those who die will bow to the Lord and will worship him. 
And of course, we know people are dying in the church age. People will be dying. We see this in, from Isaiah. People will be dying in the kingdom age as well. And, and, and the point he's trying to make, again, is that everyone, what, every person, whether they live or whether they die, is going to bow down to the Lord. That's what's going to happen. And I love this thought here. Everybody, whether they want to or not, that's what's going to happen. Jesus is making this point then. Because they're going to worship because he is the Lord and he is the king. And he will not, there's verses that say that, he will not let anybody worship anybody or anything else. Not at all. It's verse 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Posterity is a word that refers to your descendants. That also means seed. Your descendants, and, and I believe he's talking about both the church age here, and also believers in the kingdom age, and what are they doing? What's it say they're doing here? They're going to be talking about the Lord. They're going to tell people about the Lord, that the Lord is righteous and, and we are unrighteous, and that, that Jesus Christ is the only answer to a person's sins. The only, only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. That's what I believe he's, he's saying there. And this, it's our job. We know this. During this church age, it's our job to tell people. This is what we want our children to do, too, to tell people the truth, what's most important. There's so many things to talk about in this world, and sometimes I can get a little bit distracted. I've got to make sure I always focus on the main thing. What do people need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. And that should be our mission. That should be our desire. We think about people. We pray about people and, and ask God to do this, to, to be working in their hearts and giving us opportunities open doors to share the gospel. And of course, then this message is going to be proclaimed in the kingdom age as well. Turn to Psalm 96. I believe this is what 96 is saying here. I believe it's a kingdom psalm. Verses 1 to 3, about telling people about the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. You say that now, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen before Christ comes back, but it will in the future. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. See that last phrase? Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. That is, the gospel will be preached all over the world during the kingdom age to come. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So it's, 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 read this psalm with that whole thought in mind. Is Yeah, it can, you can apply it here to some degree. But it's really the application, the really fulfillment, the, the, the result of what Christ does is seen in the future as talked about in these verses right here. I want to conclude with just three points here. First comes from the last phrase. Go back to Psalm 22. I never saw this till just recently, working on this message. 31, they'll come and declare his righteousness to a people who'll be born, that he has performed it. That's the word. That's the phrase. That he has done it. And I believe this refers to Christ's finished work on the cross. You know the verse in John 19:30 when Jesus cries out, it is finished. You know that? So here, this psalm is about Jesus suffering and dying for our sins, and it concludes by saying that the work to pay for our sins is done. He's performed it. It's finished, concluded. Second point is this, not from this psalm, but just the big picture. Jesus Christ is Lord and King. Not long from now, there'll be a rapture. 
believers on this earth will be taken up into heaven, joined with all believers from all time, and glorified. That's to get your brand new body. And then shortly after that, because they'll be in heaven watching the wrath of God being poured out on earth, and after that, the kingdom, Christ will descend upon this earth, and he will begin his reign, and we as Christians will reign with him. The third point, what I mentioned before, tells us what helped Jesus to keep going, to endure to his end, and it's key for you. It is so important. It was his, he, he knew the Father's love, and he was trusting in his Father, and he had hope. All three of those were critically important. He knew the Father's love, he trusted in his Father, and he had hope. He knew there'd be this future we read about here, just briefly, this amazing, wonderful, and glorious future. Let's turn to conclude with Revelation chapter 7. I mentioned before, it says there in Psalm 22 that the believers will, they will be standing before the Lord. And this is what Revelation chapter 7 tells us is going to happen. Verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we will be there. As believers, we will be there. I mean, think about that. I mean, some people say you can't know the future. Yes, we can. Not everything, but some things. That's one thing. Think about it. There will come a day when you're all together with all these other believers standing before the Lord, worshiping and giving praise and honor to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we Bless you for bringing us together. Thank you, Lord, for your words. Psalm 22, a picture, Lord, a good picture, really a lot of detail about what you went through for us, Jesus. We can't imagine. We've all had difficulties, physical difficulties, and and emotional and relational and spiritual difficulties. We've all had that. But nothing, nothing at all like what you went through for us. And so we say thank you. And so we say thank you for doing that. Might, might our hearts be stirred by this, this great love that you have for us? Sometimes we go along and we try to be satisfied by other things and must see that only real satisfaction comes from knowing you and knowing your love and knowing your goodness and your mercy in our hearts and lives. So we, we thank you for that, Father. Thank you again, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for Holy Spirit. Because you applied the work of Christ to our lives when we got saved. That's what you did. We thank you. Now you still live in us. And, And help us then to keep going to the end of our life, and then we'll be forever with you, Father, and Lord Jesus in spirit in heaven. We thank you. So we just pray this now. Pray for all the people who couldn't be here. I think of the two carols, Lord. Pray that you'd help them, strengthen them, Lord, and and others that couldn't be here. But, Lord, we just thank you so much for your love for us, your kindness. Just lead us now. And thank you. This is a communion Sunday. How appropriate that we can take communion on this Sunday as we talk about you, Lord Jesus, and what you did for us on the cross. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.